Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Well, uh, Happy New Year to those I haven't seen or greeted yet. Uh, I hope this is a wonderful year for you. I hope the Lord blesses you. May, um, may you really experience His presence and His favor and His goodness. And um, may it take you from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and from glory to glory this year. End of last year, um, we had a, a bit of a fire in uh, the school, then uh, Roosevelt High School, where we have our morning services, and uh, the foyer and, uh, of, the, of the building burned down, and the building was somewhat damaged. And uh, I thought, you know, it's amazing how the Lord uses, makes all things work together for our good, for those who, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And... Um, in any case, to make a long story short, we uh, used the opportunity to sort of renovate the, the hall a bit, uh, fix it up. Um, those of you who have been to the morning service will know, um, you know, the, the hall is not as modern as, as this one is, and uh, it wasn't as soundproof, so the neighbors would often complain if we worshiped too, too loudly and too exuberantly. <laughs> so we used it as an opportunity just to sort of um, fix up the hall and uh, close make it a bit more soundproof, close it up a bit, and uh, make it a bit more modern and upgrade it a bit. And um, also, I thought it's, it's such an amazing um, opportunity because just like the, the building that we meet in, in the mornings is under construction, so in a very real way, we as people are under construction. You know, um, and even us as a community, we're under construction. And I'm going to have communion at the end of the service, but I'm gonna, and I'm going to read you a, a portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians. And uh, the church in Corinth was also a church under construction. If you, if you go and read the beginning, right at the beginning of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul starts off the letter and he greets them as, uh, some translations say, saints. Um, the holy ones. So the word holy is used. But then you read the rest of the letter and it's a... It's a Letter of correction, and, and you know, there's sexual immorality, and they have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they're abusing them, and uh, there's divisions, and uh, you know, all kinds of factions and squabbles, and false teaching, and you name it, you know, almost anything that can go wrong seems to be going wrong in the church in Corinth. And yet, Paul calls them the saints, the holy ones. And you know, um, the reason for that is because just like us, they're, they're a community under construction. None of us have, have arrived. Uh, God might have done amazing things in our lives. He might have done um, really great things and taken away some bad things, put in some good things, done some re- renovations and so on. But none of us can say that, that we've arrived. I, I always uh, think of, you know, when, when I go, I, I still use my my Google Maps, you know, to, to go places in Joburg. Otherwise, I get lost. Uh, and and uh, say so I'm driving to the airport or wherever. And when I get there, the lady says in that, that nice soothing voice, you have arrived. <laughs> and uh, I realize that the, the Holy Spirit is not a spiritual GPS that tells you, you have arrived. <laughs> because this side of eternity, we have not arrived. Um, we're still under construction. Um, so um, I'm going to just for the, for the next few weeks be, be, be sharing on that. Um, and I want to start with this scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 to 26. 
Let me just read it to you. It says, so, there's, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and eat your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And one thing I just want to highlight from this text is how Paul shows that we live in a specific time in history, a time that uh, many theologians call the already but not yet. The already but not yet. We are, uh, we, we are already but we are not yet. We, we live in a time that is already but not yet. So I just want you to uh, look at that last phrase on the, on the screen. It says there, when you do communion, and, and it's interesting, he doesn't say doing communion and participating in communion gives you the strength to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, when you participate in communion, that participation is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? So you proclaim, which is something you do in the present, the Lord's death, which is something in the past, until he comes, which is something in the future. And now let me, let me put it this way. Um, we proclaim, and, and it's not only the Lord's um, Supper that, that allows us to do this. Our lives, just like the Lord's Supper, should be a proclamation of this reality. That we have already died with Christ and that we are waiting for His for him to come back. Um, I, I think of, for instance, um, you know, you guys, lot, lots of you are getting married nowadays, so, so I'm doing quite a lot of weddings and so on. So I've been preaching quite a few times from, um, you know, scriptures like Ephesians 5, where it says that, um, you know, husbands and wives, and talking about it, but then it says that husbands and wives represent Christ and the church, his bride. And Tim Keller says it so beautifully. He says marriage, Christian marriage, when it's done right, is actually gospel reenactment. Husband and wife have the privilege of portraying this parable, this, this cosmic love story between Christ and his bride, of acting out the essence of the gospel, the love between Jesus and his, and his church. And all of life is supposed to be gospel reenactment. We're supposed to proclaim. In the present, we're supposed to proclaim. Uh, and then it says the Lord's death. Sorry, I'll write very ugly. <laughs> the Lord's death um, until he comes. Um, and like I said, that's future and that's past. So what we do in the present, we are here. In the present. And what we do in the present allows us to, links us to what is already true, what has already happened, but it also anticipates 
what is not yet, what has not yet happened. What has already happened is that Jesus has died. Now, Jesus died, and we as Christians, having read the Bible, and especially having read the New Testament, we look back on that, and it doesn't really surprise us. But if you think about it, you know, Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, the, the anointed Jewish king. And if you think about how people in his time, what they expected, that he comes along and he does all kinds of miracles, he walks on water, he silences the storm, he multiplies, you know, the, the, the fish and the bread and feeds 5,000 people. I mean, that's Moses on steroids, okay? Uh, he's doing all kinds of amazing things. He's saying all the right things. He's, he's, he's speaking with such wisdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He seems to be starting a revolution, and people are like, oh yeah, here comes the guy. He's got the power and he's going to run the Romans out of town and he's the Roman oppressors and he's going to set us free. And then what happens is, to their great surprise, Jesus ends up on the cross and dies. Not only the most painful, but the most shameful death. Instead of sitting down on a throne, he's nailed to a cross. Instead of a crown of, uh, of gold on his head, he has a crown of thorns on his head. And he dies. Um, but then it says, we proclaim the Lord's death, but until he comes. Now, obviously, if someone comes back, they cannot come back if they're if they dead. Okay? If you think about all the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies when he says, I will be back. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, he can't be back when he's dead. If he's dead, he won't be back. <laughs> So something must have happened between the Lord's death and his coming back again. And that something is that Jesus rose from the dead. So when we here in the present partake of communion, we take the bread which represents Jesus' broken body, we take the, the cup which represents his shed blood, and we receive as it were Jesus in covenant because it's a covenant meal. You know, that's why at, at weddings also you have a um, reception with a meal. It's actually a covenant meal because you're making covenant, okay? And, and the two, just like the bride and, 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 the bride and the groom become one, so in, in covenant, always those who make covenant become covenantally one. We become one with Jesus so that what has already happened to Jesus, his death and resurrection, has therefore already happened to us. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. And that, that is sort of the, 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 the time in which we live, if I can put it that way. Um, and, 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 and the power of the gospel is it, it, it allows us to participate in what is already true of Jesus, and it allows us to anticipate what is going to be true, uh, that is going to come back again. Um, Another way of looking at it is, um, let me put it this way, uh, you have the old age, sorry, old age of this world, and then you have the, the, the new age that God institutes, the, the age to come. And Jesus instituted it with his cross. That's the tipping point in history. But the problem is, we're still in this period where the old age, what used to be death, sickness, sin, suffering, all of those bad things still going on. 
The new age has already begun. Death is still there, but the resurrection is also there. Jesus has already been resurrected. Sickness is still there, but healing is also there. Sin is still there, but forgiveness is already there. Our bodies eventually decay, but our bodies also become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so we live sort of between, in the overlap of the ages, between what, um, what is old and what is being renewed. Um, you know, and, sorry, so we live here in the already but not yet. So just a few things. If we live in the already but not yet, then we should expect there to be failure and setbacks. You see, sometimes we as Christians live as though there shouldn't be. You know, if we're Christians, oh, I belong to Jesus, I serve God, you know, nothing should ever go wrong in my life. I mean, we don't say it in so many words, but in our heart of hearts, we, we sort of believe it. And when it comes out is when things do go wrong. Then we, we get really angry or we get really upset, we get really flustered because things go wrong. Because in our heart of hearts, actually, we expect things shouldn't go wrong. You know, I should get, you know, the right spouse at the right time. You know, I should get the job, you know, that I want and, and that I applied for. You know, I, um, you know, I shouldn't get sick. I shouldn't, uh, you know, people shouldn't be nasty to me. I shouldn't fall into sin. You know, things shouldn't go wrong. There shouldn't be setbacks. But the reality is there are setbacks. Any one of you had setbacks last year? <laughs> any of you had any failures last year where you failed? I think all of us have had. And here's the thing. So often because we, we wrongly think we, we live fully in the, um, everything is already. Nothing is not yet. Sometimes we live with that mentality. We, we think that uh, that is true. Um, then when failure comes, when setbacks come, it really knocks us. It really hits us for a, uh, for a loop. And, and the, the Corinthians were like that as well. I just want to read you this. Paul, this is how Paul sort of sarcastically uh, takes them on. He says, already you, uh, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. They had that same problem that we so often have of thinking that everything should be perfect. We, we already have everything. We already reign, you know. There, there is no not yet. Everything is already. Now, the problem is, here's what, what happens. When you don't expect things to go wrong, when you don't expect failures and setbacks, when those failures and, in, and setbacks inevitably come, then it's a double blow to you. Because firstly is the blow of the actual setback, you know, the actual failure. But secondly is the fact that it's unexpected and you, you have to wrestle with this, why is this happening? Why are things going wrong? Why are there setbacks? Why did the hall burn down? You know, why did I not get that job? Or why did I get that job and then it didn't turn out to be what I wanted it to be? You know, my boss turned out to be a Roman oppressor instead of, you know, what he pretended to be in the interview. <laughs> you know, why are these things happening? You know, and, 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 and it's a double blow because you're not only wrestling with whatever went wrong, but you're also wrestling with the fact that you didn't expect it to go wrong. In fact, you... You're saying to yourself, often you say to yourself, what did I do wrong? Or what did God do wrong? Where's God in all of this? And it's a double blow. But while we're living in the already but not yet, we should expect things to go wrong. We should expect things to go wrong. 
Now, when you expect things to go wrong, it doesn't mean that they're not going to go wrong. They're going to go wrong, wrong less often. They're still going to go wrong. It's still going to be the same. But at least you're going to expect it. It means that our faith is going to be a lot more robust. Because we understand where we are. We understand that we're in the already but not yet. We're in the overlap of the ages. We're still part of the old age, but we're already experiencing the new age. The age to come. Um, but also, another thing, if we, if we um, understand that we live in the already but not yet, then we also understand that failure is not final. Setbacks are not at the end of the world. I mean, if, if you think about it, probably one of the greatest setbacks in the history, or seeming setbacks in the history of mankind, was the cross. Jesus, the anointed Jewish Messiah, the son of David, who everyone expected to come and run the Romans out of town, who had the power, clearly. I mean, he put it, quite, he put it on display in his ministry. He, was, he, he really was a very powerful leader, uh, naturally with all the wisdom to read in the, uh, lead in the right way, but also the, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do miracles, amazing miracles. Everyone had such high hopes for him. And then he goes and dies on the cross, like I said. The most painful and shameful death imaginable to man. No wonder those two guys whom he met after the, the resurrection on, on the Sunday, uh, walking back to, to Emmaus, you know, they were all disappointed. And they were like, you know, and he's like, you know, why are you so downcast? And they say, are, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? <laughs> I think that poor guy, Cleopas, is going to be... Uh, teased for all of eternity for asking that question. <laughs> Dear Cleopas, tell us again, tell us again, what did you ask Jesus on the way to Emmaus? <laughs> Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? But I can understand, you can, from their perspective, you can understand their disappointment and their disillusionment. What was supposed to be Jesus, you know, the great victory, has, be, has become the greatest setback, the greatest disappointment in their eyes. In fact, I'm sure there were some people who were part of those crowds who were following Jesus, who saw the miracles, who heard Jesus' teaching and all his wisdom, and who looked at the cross and said, this is an absolute, absolute catastrophe, who walked away completely disillusioned and said, well, if he who lived the perfect life who are so righteous, who are so powerful and did such miracles, who are so wise and who taught so powerfully, if he had to die in this way, then I don't know if I can believe in God anymore. Because I don't, I don't know whether God can ever bring anything good out of this. And of course, looking back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. we can see that what looked like the greatest tragedy, the greatest setback, the greatest failure in history turned out to be the greatest good that God ever did. And He delivered them, not according to their low expectations, just of the political and physical and economic oppression of the Romans, but He, lived, he, he delivered them and all of humanity who lived then and who lived since from the oppression of sin. From the tyranny of sin. Now, it's God, not only did God make good to come out of what seemed like a setback and a failure with, with Jesus' death, with the Lord's death, He made the greatest good come out of it. Now, if God can make, and, and that's what that scripture refers to, remember, proclaiming the Lord's death, His crucifixion, until He comes. If 
if we proclaim that, we are actually implicitly proclaiming the truth that if God can make the greatest good come out of what seems to be the greatest tragedy, the greatest setback, the greatest failure, then God can make great good come out of our little setbacks and our little failures as well. In other words, failure is not final. Failure is not final. And the cross, cross reminds us of, of, of that. And I think some of you, some of us who, who, who failed and maybe even failed repeatedly last year and had many setbacks, some of us need to hear that. Some of us need to be reminded of that. Because not only did Jesus die, but God raised him from the dead. And because God raised him from the dead, God can now raise us from the dead. His life became the seed that fell into the ground and died and now bears much fruit. So, we need to trust God for that, and, and, and we need to proclaim that over our lives. That, let me put it this way, your past no longer, if you are in Christ, if you can by faith eat the bread and drink the cup, in other words, receive Christ, covenantally, be one with Him, then your past no longer determines your future. Jesus' past determines your future. His past determines your future. His past death and His past resurrection. You know, sometimes we, we preach the gospel as though all that Jesus did on the cross was to take our sins to the cross. And Jesus did take our sins to the cross, but He didn't only take our sins to the cross, did He? He took us to the cross. Think about that for a while. That means that you have already experienced death. And in Christ you have already experienced resurrection. So, that is why uh, we are um, under construction. And let me just show you a few, few places in this text where it talks about uh, the Corinthians being under construction. Um, it says there, and it's sort of in a sense mentioning two groups. It's just before this, it talks about there being divisions and factions and groups among you. And you can see one of the groups are sort of, you know, the upper class and the lower class, because it talks about, um, you know, some eating their own private suppers instead of the Lord's Supper. You know, as they, they turn the Lord's Supper, what should be a sacred communal meal, into their own private suppers because they're doing it with the wrong heart and with the wrong motive. And then it says, um, with a result that one remains hungry and another gets drunk. And it talks about those who remain hungry um, there as um, those in the church who have nothing. And already there you can see the already but not yet. Because if you can read 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says explicitly in so many words, you have everything. You are the saints. You are in Christ. You have everything. Everything belongs to you. Because if Christ belongs to you covenantally, everything belongs to Christ. And if Christ belongs to you, then everything belongs to you. You already have everything. So 
you have these poor Christians who in one sense already have everything, already have everything, but do not yet have everything. In fact, in some sense, they still have nothing. Physically, they're poor, but spiritually, they're rich. They have everything. The already and the not yet. But then you also have the other group. He says, uh, you know, one, one person remains hungry, another one gets drunk. And you have the group, probably the, the more rich, wealthy group, and, you know, they bring, you know, all kinds of extra food, and then they eat it in the presence of the poor Christians who have nothing. And they're not willing to sacrifice a bit of their wealth and a bit of their comfort for the sake and for the benefit of their brothers and sisters. And, and if you think about that, that's exactly the contrary of what communion is, of what the Lord's Supper is. Why is the Lord's Supper even possible? The Lord's Supper is possible because Jesus, who had everything, was willing to sacrifice everything so that we can receive mercy. It says there, let me just show that. It says, um, this is my body. Jesus says, this is my body which is for you, which is given for you, which is given on behalf of you, which is given instead of you, which is given in your place, if you go and read in the, in, in the Greek. In other words, Jesus' death was a vicarious death. It was a death in place of. It was a death instead of. It was a death in our place. In other words, it was a death that we deserved. We deserved death. Jesus deserved life. He, he, he had everything. And yet he was willing to sacrifice his life, sacrifice his all his comfort and his glory with the Father, and come down and at great loving, in great loving self-sacrifice, give himself so that we who deserve death can experience life, and we, des- we deserve the alienation of God and to be separated from God can be reunited to God. He was willing to make that loving self-sacrifice. So the, the crux of communion, what communion talks of, when we eat the, the bread and drink the cup, is it talks about loving self-sacrifice. And now come these Christians... In exactly the opposite spirit, instead of loving self-sacrifice, they come in callous self-interest. I'm just going to look after myself. I'm just going to make sure I'm comfortable and happy and well-fed and full. And I'm not going to be willing to sacrifice for my brothers and sisters who have less. In other words, that's how they turn the Lord's Supper into their own private supper. By missing the point of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is only possible because of Jesus' loving self-sacrifice. But the Lord's Supper is only meaningful if we imitate His loving self-sacrifice. Do you see that? And so often we are exactly, I mean, we can easily point the finger to these Corinthian Christians and say, Oh, you know, those bunch of gluttons. You know, look at them, you know, selfish. But aren't we exactly like that? In other ways, maybe, but exactly like that. You know, I might, you know, because, you know, I'm under pressure, you know, when my kids come and pester me for something, I might get impatient with them and shout at them and be angry at them uh, and sort of just dismiss them instead of being willing to sacrifice my time and my energy and be patient with them and teach them as I'm supposed to do. And, 
I so often forget, and I'm sure all of us do this, that Jesus made this great sacrifice for me at great personal expense. He made sure that I can be saved, I can be loved, I can be accepted, I can be one with him, I can become like him. Is it too much to ask for me to make little sacrifices so that other people, my brothers and sisters, can benefit as well? Now, let me, let me put it this way. Jesus didn't sacrifice so that we would not have to sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed so that when we sacrifice, we become more like him. And that's what communion is all about. And that's why we eat the bread and why we drink the cup. We receive it into ourselves and it becomes part of us. Symbolizing how Christ becomes part of us. We receive him into us and therefore become more like him. We imitate him. And we move from callous or indifferent self-interest to loving self-sacrifice just like Jesus. So, let me just mention this. We, if you just think about the already and the not yet um, in closing, we are all driven and motivated by something that is not yet, by hope. We are hope-driven people. You know, I always think of a, a story I once heard, um, you know, say you, you, you take two guys and you send them to work in a sewage plant where it really s- smells terrible and they have to shovel dung all day long and they, it's hard physical labor which is uncomfortable and you only pay them a, 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 you know, a, a very basic, a very small salary. But you tell one of the guys, after doing this for a year, I'll give you 10 million rand. Okay? And the other one you say nothing to. The one that you say nothing to, I mean, he's going to maybe do it for a few weeks and then he's going to give up and say, no, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. But the one that you said, um, you know, after a year you'll get 10 million rand, he'll keep doing it. Even though it's uncomfortable, even though it smells terrible, even though it's hard work, even though he gets paid little because of his hope of what he's going to receive at the end. Now, Christian retirement benefits are out of this world, okay? (laughs) Literally, (laughs) out of this world. And our hope of what is not yet, our hope of what will happen when Jesus comes again, motivates us and drives us uh, to live already. So, So the not yet motivates, the hope of the not yet motivates us to participate in the already, okay? But the already guarantees that the not yet will happen. Uh, Let me put it this way. If Jesus has already died and resurrected, it guarantees that when we die, we will also be resurrected. Uh, The Holy Spirit, who is the biggest part of our already, who lives inside of us if uh, if we belong to Christ, one of his names in the, in the Greek is um, the word arabon, which means a down payment or an engagement ring, if you will. In other words, it, it's an it's a, it's a economic term of a deposit or a down payment that is given that guarantees that the rest will be paid as well. 
He's the seal. He's the guarantee. So if the Holy Spirit has already been given to us, then the already of the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will receive the rest. And therefore we can have hope. Therefore, though, even though last year things went wrong in our lives, there were setbacks, there were failures, we can have hope. Therefore, even though this year we can expect things to sometimes go wrong, we can expect there to sometimes be setbacks and failures, that we will fail and that other people will fail us. We can have hope because we know we live between the already and the not yet. And the already guarantees the not yet. Because Jesus has died and been resurrected, he will come back. He will finish what he started in us. Do you believe that? How would we live as a community if we truly believe that? How would we look as a community if we truly believe that Jesus will complete the good work that he started in us? Even to the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What things are there that you are worrying about now that you wouldn't worry about if you knew Jesus would definitely complete the good work that he started in you? What are the things in the future that you are afraid of that you would no longer be afraid of if you truly, in your heart of hearts, deeply believed that Jesus will complete the good work that he started in you? What failures are you now afraid of that you wouldn't be afraid of if you knew that the completion of the good work started in your life depended not so much on you as on Jesus? Would you still be afraid of those failures? Why are you afraid of those failures? Why am I afraid of those failures? Because we're, we know ourselves. <laughs> we know that we're already, yeah, God has done some things, but we're definitely not yet. <laughs> We're already being saved, but we're not yet completely saved. The kingdom has already been inaugurated in our lives, but it's not yet been consummated. God has started a good work, but he's not finished. So we're afraid of failure because we don't have confidence in ourselves not to fail. And rightly so. We shouldn't have confidence in ourselves not to fail, but we should have confidence in the Lord Jesus who died for us and who's coming back again. We should have confidence in Him not to fail. So how afraid we are of failure tells us how much we trust in ourselves or how much we trust in the Lord. So let's stand, and we're going to have communion together. Do we have the elements of the communion uh, ready? Where's, uh, where's Anas? He said he, he got the stuff ready for us. The bread and the wine. Let me put it to you this way. An, an analogy I just want to maybe draw. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people who are like really rich, you know, billionaires, instead of, you know, saying, okay, when I die, my kids inherit all my money, they'll say, okay, when I die my money goes into a trust fund for my kids. And there's someone who sort of manages the trust fund and sort of releases the money little by little to them, you know, as they can handle it. You know, if they're too young and too uh, foolish and too immature to handle all of it at once and they might waste it, you know, then I don't want to give it to them all at once. I want to give it to them in, in uh, little bits as they can handle it so they can also learn to be good stewards of it. 
And that, when that child or when those children, when their, their father dies, the inheritance immediately becomes theirs. It's in a trust fund that belongs to them, that can only be paid out to them. So it's already theirs, but it's not yet fully theirs. Right? And in a sense, we're like that. Okay? So turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm a trust fund baby. (laughs) 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 I have an inheritance in a trust fund. (laughs) And while I'm under construction, God is teaching me to responsibly and faithfully and wisely handle the great inheritance that he has for me. And he's already given me some of it, as much as I can handle, but he's not yet given me all of it. But he will. He will one day give me all of it. So, Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you, Lord, for this bread which represents your body which was broken for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you, when you took that bread and you broke it, you knew that you were giving yourself to be broken in that way. Broken as we deserved to be broken for our sins. Thank you that even though we were so sinful that you had to die for us, that you had to be broken for us, we were also so loved that you were glad to die for us and be broken for us. And as we receive this bread, as we partake in this bread, we we receive that love, your love, which is so great we can never earn it, we can never deserve it, but we receive it nonetheless. And thank you for it, Jesus, that you give it to us in your grace. Thank you that you loved us that much. And we receive your love in Jesus' name. Let's eat together. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for this this cup, which is the new covenant in your blood. And thank you, Lord, that your blood washes away all our sins. Thank you that if we are in Christ... Your blood washes away all our past, all our failures, all our setbacks, all our disappointments, and cleanses our conscience. And Lord, I just want to pray where there are certain people here this evening who are walking around with consciences that are bugging them and that feel defiled. I want to pray, Lord, that as we drink together, the Lord, that, that we will not only be reminded that, that you died of your death, that you died for our sins, Lord, but that, that, 
that the blood, your blood that was shed for us when you died, will cleanse us from all our sins and even cleanse our consciences, Lord. And I just want to speak over certain people here tonight that if your conscience accuses you, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than your conscience and can cleanse your conscience from all sins. Thank you, Lord, that you say in your word, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just want you to, um, b- just before we drink, if there's anything that, that you feel the Lord is laying on your heart that you need to confess, any sin that you need to confess, anything that, that is bugging your conscience, just, just bring it before the, the Lord now, just softly in your own words, and say, Lord, I confess it to you. I acknowledge the sin and I repent of it. Please forgive me. And as we drink together, Lord, we receive your cleansing and forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Let's drink. So, Lord Jesus, we just come to you and At the beginning of this year, we just want to get our hearts and our minds right. And we understand that even though we are not yet perfect, just like the church in Corinth, Lord, there are things that we lack physically. Just like the church in Corinth, there are ways in which we do not imitate you, Lord. In fact, even though we belong to you and We are Christians and part of the church. There are things, there are areas in our lives where we don't look like you at all. Where that family resemblance has not yet uh, taken hold and, and, and is not yet visible. So we know that there are quite a few things that are not yet. And we expect that this year will not be a perfect year. There will be setbacks. There will be failures. We will fail ourselves, we will fail you, we'll fail one another. But we also know that you have already died for us. You have already risen from the grave. You have already given us your Holy Spirit. You have already forgiven our sins. And you have already guaranteed that you will complete the good work that you have started in us. And that is enough for us, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.